Hello and welcome to IPO Stories, a podcast that explores the tracks to IPOs for companies and their stakeholders. Through interviews with professionals who have led companies to public markets, we will learn about what it takes to IPO a business, the do's and the don'ts before, during, and after the listing process. I'm Gauthier. I'm Pear, co-founders of Amundsen Investment Management, a Europe-based equity manager. Today, we discuss the role of investor relations with Julia Stutzel, the co-founder of Unicorn, an IR consultancy, and also a fellow podcast host. We first met with Julia when she was in investor relations at Deliver Hero, and then three years later when she headed the investor relations team at About You during the IPO process. Today, we'll talk about the role of investor relations starting during the IPO process. In this podcast, we have not yet covered the vast topic of who the public investors participating in IPOs are and how companies' shareholder bases evolve over time. We plan to have several guests working in investor relations to share their experience with public investors across a variety of industries. Julia is our first guest today. At Amundsen, we think that having an IR early in the IPO process is extremely important, as the IPO process is ultimately an investor relations exercise. Your objective as a newly listed company is to build a diversified base of investors, of which some may invest at IPO, but others will follow the company and decide to invest later, as they see you delivering on your business plan. With Julia, we discuss her experience as an IR, the importance of having an investor relations strategy during the IPO process and beyond, how to understand which investors you want to have on your shareholder registry from day one, and what makes a good investor relations hire. Before we start, we would like to remind our listeners that our discussion is not financial advice, nor an investment recommendation, nor a solicitation to buy or sell any financial instruments or an offer for financial services or any other transaction. The information contained in the recording has no contractual value and are destined for an informational purpose only. Amundsen Investment Management and the participants in this podcast may have holdings in the companies being discussed. Great to have you, uh, Julia. We're really looking forward to, to having you on the show. We actually met during the IPO of About You back into um, spring 21. Yeah. At the time, you were head of investor relations. For those who don't know About You, it's a German uh, online retailer based of Hamburg. At the time, they were generating a billion euro of revenues, and I think they're about to print two billion this year. So clearly, uh, a fast growth um, story. And um, before that, you actually you were also at another German IPO, Delivery Hero. At the time, I don't think we met, but but you were there. That was back in two thousand eighteen. I think we actually met after. I think we had a couple of meetings after. But yeah, I, I think I know you already for quite some time. <laughs> after the IPO, not during the IPO, but you're right. That was back in 2018, already uh, six years, right? So so long time ago now. And since then, you have started your own consultancy firm as well. I think um, giving advice to private companies for their investor relation uh, setup, right? Correct. Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for having me here on the show. Like I'm super thrilled uh, to be actually on the other side of the mic as well. Um, yeah, correct. So I um, I did investor relations uh, for Deliver Hero and for About You. And then uh, now I have a consultancy uh, that is advising amongst other things on IPOs and listings, how to get started specifically for digital business models, which I feel very much at home, as you can see from my past experience. And in terms of the IPO's experience, so I mentioned about you, I mentioned Delivery Hero. Can you remind everyone how much experience you have with, with IPOs directly or indirectly? Yeah, so I've done a couple. First of all, I mean, at the Delivery Hero, as you said, I joined after the IPO. So it was more like the setup work that I did after the IPO, what it actually means to be listed. But I would still say that this was somewhat part of the IPO experience because, you know, it was still like very much early stage. So there was not really like a, like a foundation of IR that we could go back on. 
And then later at About You, it was actually doing the IPO process before the company was public. So that was also super interesting for me to see kind of both parts of that of that same coin. And then since now with Unicorn, I've advised two companies more in the spec space. So Tony's and also Mali Spoon, uh, mainly also on their IR setup. So um, Mali Spoon, for example, recently or this year got relisted in Frankfurt. It's like a, a meal kit provider, like a competitor to HelloFresh. Mm -hmm. And so they relisted in Frankfurt. And so we did that process from that perspective. So I have already a couple, but as you can see, it's like usually digital business models, which I feel very much uh, yeah, at home. Okay. So it's fair to say you have had long experience interaction with more tech companies in the digital world, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I just um, really back then in 2018, when I came to Deliver Hero, I fell into that tech space. I did not have any tech experience before. I also didn't have equity experience before. In fact, I work for now almost 15 years in capital markets, but my prior experience in capital markets was actually more debt heavy um, when I was working at Morgan Stanley. And I wanted to move to Berlin. And, you know, in Berlin, you have a lot of tech companies. And so this is my route to how I got into the tech space. And yeah, my experience really has manifested then further into that space. Okay, perfect. There's one topic I would like to start going straight into and digging into it. It's the nature of investors participating in IPOs. As, as investor relation, you're supposed to manage those interactions with, with public investors. How different are the nature of investors uh, with whom you're interacting during the IPO versus after the IPO, if you can share some color on that? Yeah, absolutely. So you mean like during or even before the IPO? Well, actually, it's a good question. You could actually start before the IPO. I guess the question I'm keen to, to address here is how different IPO investors are versus you know, the, the post-IPO investors. Yeah, so in general, I think like private investors before the IPO, I would consider them as much more long-term focused because just it's the nature of private market investing, right? Like a lot of them don't make it and you have to have this very long vision to even get them through to even become an IPO company at one point. But there, I didn't have too much inter interactions, right? So at About You, obviously, there were some pre-IPO investors involved that already have been in the company for very long, investors that really knew the management very well and the equity story well because they joined the company very, very early on. And then during the IPO, I would also say that most companies want to invest for strategic reasons and kind of with a long-term horizon. But you obviously also have companies uh, specifically then post-IPO that are more of a short-term horizon. So they maybe only want to invest for the next quarter or they expect the next quarter to be specifically well. So I would say before and after IPO, there can be more investors also that have a more shorter horizon in terms of investing. Not only hedge funds, but also investors that potentially just want to trade in and out of the stock. And because a company, once it's listed, has to report on a quarterly basis, um, which is not the case before, there's also much more disclosure and you can make decisions also on a much more short-term horizon. Other than that, I would say that if a, an investor is invested during the IPO and if you're going through this kind of whole process, it's a very long process. Like, you know, there's a lot of meetings, a lot of in-depth questions. I think uh, an investor really needs to get very comfortable around the story, the management, um, the legal matters, uh, today even ESG matters, in order to kind of pull the trigger to get invested. And I would say that after IPO, investor DD maybe are not as thorough than during an IPO. I think it's because it's like usually there's more risk associated as well with an IPO. I mean, it's a very fragile environment that you have, like with markets, you know, potentially being volatile on the day. So there's like large positions exposed. So I think it felt like DDs were much more thorough even than, you know, if you're investing later. And also that is because you have later already a track record. You have like certain reporting. You have already proven that you maybe can deliver on certain guidances. So there's much more trust in the market once a company is listed. 
makes sense. At the end of the day, the level of information you have uh, at the time of the IPO, I mean, it, sh- it should be quite exhaustive, right? You have a prospectus, you have access to the management, but I guess the level of risk you're taking in a, into a new company coming to the market unknown to public investors is higher, right? So so yeah. you, you have different type of um, investors profile and, and risk appetite. Exactly. But do you think then, because IPOs are actually a unique opportunity to build your shareholder base, and that's probably the only one you ever have as a public company to decide which shareholders you want at day one. Do you think that actually matters for you as an IR or as a company to decide on, on those investors you want day one? Or as you said, over time, the shareholder base will change and, and you know day one doesn't really matter? I think... Every opportunity matters. So if you do want to stir the company in a certain directions, like for example, you do want to have more strategic investors on board, more long-term investors on board, you want to have maybe a certain part of liquidity as well um, insured. Maybe you need to have a bit more hedge funds, right? Everyone is like always talking bad about hedge funds, but they actually do have a role as well in, in capital markets, right? Maybe if you say down the line, we are expanding more to the US and we want to have more uh, a geographical footprint in the US also with our investor base. I think it's it's good to make those strategic decisions during the time of the IPO and also actively reach out to them through the banks that are kind of covering you or through the IPO advisor that's covering you. But I mean, this doesn't end there, right? So it doesn't mean that after the IPO, you are completely like uh, subject to whatever happens in the markets. I think you can still stir and influence whatever's happening to your stock through investor targetings, for example, through specifically addressing certain investors, through going through specific conferences. So only because this is a snapshot at the point of IPO and this is like your cap table then or like your shareholder base that you have, this is a dynamic process. And I think also as the company's business model is evolving, as maybe management is changing, as also investors are perceiving you differently, this can still change. And I think that's also the beauty of it. But I would definitely take it at the point of IPO as an opportunity to really try to influence that as well. And it's also a lot about signaling, right? So, you know, once you're public, also people can see your shareholder register. So it's also about like, who do you have on? Like, is it like a very big name? I don't know, like a BlackRock or Nodea or like it, it also shows a little bit of sophistication and trust that you that you give to the market. You know, if like very, very big names that a lot of people know um, are invested in your stock as well. Yeah, definitely. Probably helps you to, to look more institutionalized as well. Yeah. You say hedge funds as if it was a bad word. What do you mean by that? You, you need hedge funds and they play an important role. What, what is this role? I mean, I have a feeling that um, from the company perspective, the managements, you know, they don't really maybe like sometimes hedge funds because they tend to trade in and out. And usually companies do want to have a more stable shareholder base because obviously you don't want investors necessarily to trade out because then the stock will go down. But I really think like, especially in this day and age, we see, uh, you know, almost like a liquidity crunch in some stocks and, you know, there's almost no trading happening. There's no liquidity in stocks. And I think this is an equal important part, if not even more important than just having a high stock price, that the stock is actually liquid and that there's actually something happening because otherwise you may as well be a private company. And so I think having a certain proportion of certain investor types, you know, only having hedge funds is obviously also very risky because then there's maybe too much liquidity, but having like a good mix of different geographies, different risk appetites, different types of investors is very helpful to keep that good balance and not being too too dependent on one investor or one region, right? Like, for example, also speaking geographically, if like maybe there's a lot of US investors in there and there's like a crisis in the US for whatever reason, right? Then maybe a lot of investors need to sell their positions and then you're kind of having that risk, this bulk risk attached to your shareholder register. 
Yeah, I think those are very good comments. And to be fair, I mean, shareholder base will change over time and you don't attract the same investors in the early days uh, versus later as, as a company deliver and, and build a track record, you will get some other nature of investors and probably long-term investors. It's difficult to get those investors day one when you don't have yet that track record, right? And, and in the meantime, you need liquidity because there's nothing worse for a new company to just lack that liquidity. Suddenly you become unknown, no one likes you, people can't buy, can't sell and valuation looks, you know, lower and lower every day. So I think it's very important indeed to come with this um, aware that you need to get liquidity in, in the early days. Yeah, absolutely. But did you get a chance actually to um, to get involved in the allocations yourself or you, you as an IR or head of IR at the time for About You? Again, you, you joined before the IPO, you were involved in the IPO process. You met all those investors during the IPO process. Did you have a say in the allocation or were you asked for advice here? Yes, indeed I was. So we had, just to give like a big bit of background, how the IPO team was structured. So we had an IPO advisor who was kind of coordinating all the banks, the PR advisor, the management, the internal resources and so on. Then we had obviously the banks that were introducing us to investors, setting up the meetings and being kind of in charge of the investor piece of that whole process. But I find it very important that the company is not just kind of a passive participant in this process, right? Even if you have all of these advisors, I think you need to have, and that's my recommendation to companies, you should have someone who's representing your interests because everyone in that equation has sometimes their own interests at heart as well. And it's a bit risky to just rely on external opinions. And so I, I think it was very helpful that I had already worked for a public company. And in fact, it was a similar sector, right? It was like tech e-commerce, if you will. So we knew each other. There was a lot of other investors that I already knew. So I kind of could reliably say, I think this is a good investor. You know, they're not going to trade out or immediately after the IPO, or it's a, maybe an investor that is well-regarded, um, you know, like, so there was like this element that I already knew some of the past investors and I kind of knew how they would behave. But also, yeah, it's it's just important to, coming back to the question, like what kind of shareholder register do you want? And just really thinking about that, uh, who do you want to have on your register and do you trust that they're not necessarily immediately trading out of stock? Because that's also quite unpleasant because you're doing all of the, this due diligence. And of course, for an investor, it could be quite attractive to maybe make a 20% return on one day. But that's also quite unpleasant because if the stock goes down on, on day one of trading, it just is bad signaling and it just looks really poor. And sometimes not necessarily all banks, but I think sometimes banks obviously have also different interests and also they're not necessarily joining you anymore or accompanying you anymore on the journey once you're listed, right? So once the IPO is done, a big part of the work is kind of done, right? And then you're left with whatever is happening once you're listed. And I think you need to kind of put in measures to prevent that you're completely like passive and you, you cannot do anything about it and rather try and get advice from people that have already done it. It sounds very logical to um, to have the company involved uh, around those allocations and deciding which investors you think you should have day day one, or, or and, and keeping this balance, as you said, to make sure your interests also protected because everyone might have different interests around the process and which investors to allocate. But although it's quite logical, it's not systematic that companies come with an IR at the time of their listing. It's always feels like it's a question for CFOs and CEOs, when should I start uh, embarking an IR? Where should I have the budget for it? And clearly we, we think it's obviously makes more sense to hire an IR before the IPO because this IR actually know the investors and can, you know, it's more accountable for the equity story as well uh, being sold to the market. What are you telling those private companies? How, how do you think private companies think about the timing of an IR and what is important to take into account? What would be the right advice here? I absolutely agree with you. I think companies should have an IAR in place already in the process of kind of the whole 
IPO process like early look meetings. So I actually joined the company in February of the year when we IPO'd in June. So that was like a, a good three, four months before we actually went public. And I think that was very helpful. It was obviously really the point in time when we started with early look meetings. We started with like the roadshow, the management roadshow, preparing the equity story. But I think it was very helpful for me because once we were listed, I was already fully up to speed. I knew all of the investors that we were talking to. I um, knew the equity story very well, right? So I could already start having meetings by myself and it, I wasn't really depending on management continuously to join me in meetings with me. So I think having that in place is very helpful. And I think it's in fact risky not to have it because also what a lot of companies are underestimating and you know, when you're, once you're listed, this is just the starting point of what's going to happen. So you don't, as management or as a CFO, you don't want to be then the only person that can represent the company externally, because then you have like these, you know, reportings that are happening. You have a lot of regulatory things that are coming towards you. And, you know, if you're missing some of them or one of them, even this can get also get very, not only embarrassing and it doesn't really instill a lot of trust in the company, but also it can be very expensive, right? So, um, Having a team to back up a CFO, for example, I think is very crucial. And you should not wait for that until you're actually listed. And so four months before the IPO, what are typically the pre-IPO tasks for an IR? So once we had this kind of kickoff with all of the banks, you know, all of the, you know, once the official process was started, I was mainly involved in building the equity story, kind of coordinating with banks on the slide deck, you know, giving my input from the investor point of view, then joining all of the investor meetings coordinating some of them. So I was really kind of the, the middleman between mostly the banks and management, uh, kind of either to coordinate meetings, to join meetings, to amend the equity story, and then giving it back to the banks who are kind of leading on that work piece. I was also the middleman for the, for the lawyers a lot of times. So making sure that whatever we say in the equity story, in the presentation needs to also match what's in the, in the prospectus. And uh, that was obviously in conjunction with um, the legal team, but also having like some, you know, at least like review and, and checkups and feedback loop on the prospectus as well, because uh, all of these documents obviously need to kind of link up and make sense uh, altogether. What else? Then a big piece was also kind of a bit more operational. So preparing everything that you need to have once you're listed, right? For example, an IR homepage, setting that up in a way that is showing all of the information that you need, but also making it somewhat look appealing, especially for a company that, you know, is very digital and very young, like about you. We wanted to make it like look also that way and not just like hear all your information and, you know, look and search for them. <laughs> so make it like a bit structured and nice. Then also hiring a team, obviously. So I hired a whole team before IPO. Because I knew from experience before that there will be a lot of work coming my way once we're public, right? And you cannot wait to hire people uh, once you're public because then this, there will be a delay of maybe three to six months until these people are actually joining. And I knew that this would get you know, quite, quite busy and I could very much struggle and I didn't, didn't want that as well. So that was another piece. And then I was also coordinating a bit on the press side. So we obviously had a PR agency involved, but also here making sure that the ITF or the you know, setting the price range and these kind of more technical press releases are correct and that they're also matching again what we said in the equity story, what we said in the prospectus. And then one very last piece of the kind of pre-IPO or IPO process was also organizing the opening bell event. So back then, you have to know, it was a full-blown corona. So there was no, not actually the physical opening bell in the Deutsche Börse, in the stock exchange. But we kind of replicated one with like the security measures that were in place at the time, you know, with masks and everything like distances. There was like limited people that could come in 
and so on. That was also a very interesting experience because we invited also a lot of like press and bankers and um, even influencers that would make this whole event a bit viral, right? So they would post this on social media. And so organizing that as well, kind of coordinating that was also part of the work that I did before. Okay, so there's a lot, lot of things to do. Sounds very intense as a process. You say that you attend an investor meeting. So I, I guess those are the meetings before the public lunch, so early looks or testing the water meetings, but also during the IPO roadshow, right? I'm a bit curious because you, you've, seen, you've seen a lot of investors, different type, different nationalities, some probably journalists, some probably experts, different level of sophistication, right? Any meetings you can remember or, or any points where you can remember, okay, this is a very smart investor. They're coming very prepared. They have those type of questions versus someone a bit more high level in generalist. I mean, anything you can share with us where you actually realize those are very different type of investors, more sophisticated versus probably more, I'll say, you know, generalist and, and passive investors. Anything which strikes you during the IPO process? Yeah, it's a good question. I think if an investor is coming in prepared, right, it's not just about the company necessarily telling their story, but sometimes investors are actually coming really prepared, depending on what part of the process we are. Once the prospectus is public, obviously, you know, if someone is really interested in a company, I would expect that they have read parts of the prospectus already, at least, you know, read through the presentations and kind of ask questions that go beyond the obvious. So there you can see, like, if someone's really putting in the time, because if someone puts in the time, they're more likely to be an active investor as opposed to someone who's just like, okay, I think the basic business model is interesting, but I'm not digging in so deep. So that's maybe one thing you can see, like um, if someone's asking more basic questions um, or if someone really goes beyond what is, what is already public. Then one thing what I found quite striking, and I think that's something companies should have on their mind as well, is some investors, not many, but some really take the DD to the next level. So that means they are referring to a podcast that management has given five years ago. They're like, oh, you said there, this and this. Can you elaborate on this? You know, so know as a company as well what is out there in terms of media, not not just press, not just what's on our homepage, but really also what's in, in social media, what's on digital media. And also some investors would even order, right? So this obviously just applies to B2C products, but they're testing your services. So make sure that that is also up to up to speed. And, the, you know, there's no like, for example, like food delivery, like if you say you deliver in 30 minutes and it delivers in 40 minutes, the investor might ask, okay, that service is not great. Like, how do you expect to keep your clients? What's the retention? You know, so they are trying to grab onto every piece of information that is out there. And that was something that was surprising to me, right? Like using a product, even if it's not available in that market. So we had a couple of investors in the US, obviously, that wanted to try the app and we're not available in, in the US. So they would even go as far as, you know, going through the app store and pretending to be a European customer and then downloading it to test it. And some even would order stuff to the home. So really try to keep that in mind to, you know, be prepared at least to answer those questions. Yeah, some investors are doing proper due diligence. And I think that, you know, you should expect that. And that makes sense. It's quite reassuring in a way. Um, post IPO, so the company becomes public, then suddenly you have to get quarterly reporting and updates to communicate to the investors, but you also communicate to the sales side. So those are analysts at banks and brokers who are um, covering the, the company and, and issuing sales side reports uh, quite frequently. So this is also a new audience for you, right? It's coming from the private world. What are the differences between those interactions you have with sell-side analysts versus investors in terms of the nature of the questions or the frequency of interaction, if you can share some color on that? I would say that analysts, are they're obviously an expert really deeply. Like They know a lot because they're covering not only you, they cover also your competitors. So they know everything. Like if there's any piece of news flow, they probably sometimes know before the company, which should not be the case, but they really know everything about the sector. 
and they're very curious uh, and they're very deep into the numbers. So here you should really be prepared to dig into you know the second digit of your revenue growth and profitability and like cohorts, you know, like they really want to understand because the way they're building up the models is really through that. So they're really going through the business model and trying to rebuild that business model with certain assumptions in numbers. So they're taking the cohorts, they're saying, oh, this is the retention, this is the, these are the metrics. And then they're building a revenue out of this. And then they're assuming certain costs, they're building the EBDA out of this and so on. Versus investors might not go as deeply and as like in depth, maybe into the numbers. Some do, but I find that they're more trying to make sense of it, right? From a business perspective, from a more like bigger trend perspective, maybe they're saying, uh, oh, I think like online fashion is is the next big thing. Like I think the the switch from offline to online is like a really big growth lever that, you know, the company has, or maybe ESG is a trend and you're into kind of a sustainable business model. So I feel investors more try to make, have to make sense of it. Uh, of course, numbers are also involved. And when they're challenging for numbers, you also should answer that. But I feel analysts are much more in in the details and trying to make sense of it from a very like numbers perspective. Having said that, an analyst is obviously a very important catalyst, right? So one analyst is covering multiple investors and they are also very much in touch. So if an analyst, especially from a very well-regarded research house, is putting out a recommendation that's ideally a buy and has a good price on it, like a higher price than your actual stock prices now, this has a very big lever on your you know, stock price. And a lot of investors will not do the in-depth work they will just follow that recommendation. So I think having good relationship with analysts, being very responsive, knowing your business model really well, knowing your numbers really well, it's also about how are you perceived on the call? Are you like a CFO or an IR who's like, oh, let me just double check. I need to look into the numbers or do you know them from top of your head? I mean, this is also giving an perception that you are on top of your numbers, that you know them, that you can immediately explain them to everyone. And this also plays a role, I would say. Um, and yeah, so having a good relationship with analysts is also very important. Maybe even, I would say, equally, maybe even more important than with investors, unless it's a very big investor, right? If it's a strategic investor, they also will um, call you frequently or in between results and, you know, maybe they saw a news piece. But I would say investors are a bit more on the general picture. That was a bit my impression. I don't know if you share that view, but... But I guess what you're saying is a lot of interaction with investors at the time of the IPO initially to be that shorter base and, and you know get that demand around the IPO. But post-IPO, this is very important to actually work closely with those analysts, which will be the ambassadors of your stock and your equity story. And uh, sometimes you might not like the comments they make on you or how they interpret the numbers, but you know they have a voice and they will be listened, right? And, and this is where it's up for the jury to decide. But I guess you need to balance both audience and probably look after a bit more about, you know, the sales side, agree, because they're selling again and investors more at, at the IPO is, is a priority. That's quite interesting. Knowing those considerations and everything you said sounds like an IR has to be someone who understands numbers. How would you go after hiring an IR? What, what is the right profile? What makes a good IR and, and what would be the good profile? Yeah, I think that's the interesting part about IR and that's why I really like the role as well. Yes, numbers are important. So I came from capital markets where I would say I was really like number crunching. Like I work at KPMG where I was like doing models up and down and I found it a bit too boring. That's why I moved into IR because I feel there's also a different piece to it, right? It's like, it's also the storytelling piece. It's also the the marketing piece, if you will, right? You also have to kind of be a good salesperson at the end of the day. You have like a legal piece to it as well. You have a strategic piece to it. And I think this is something, it has to be someone who's comfortable with all of these different aspects, right? You cannot be someone who's like, ah, legal, regulatory things I really don't care about. I just want to sell. That's going to end up in, you're going to end up in trouble for sure. If you are just a good salesperson, but you don't know your numbers, 
you know, maybe you're going to catch some investors with that attitude, but the ones that are digging deep, you also will lose them. So I think it has to be someone who's comfortable with all of the above. You have to be someone who's very flexible and very capable to deal with different environments. You know, you have to be very fast paced. So you have to be able to answer very quickly. You cannot be like, oh, I'm going to answer this uh, investor tomorrow or in a week, right? I mean, this timing is really of the essence and, you know, get, you get inbounds or when analysts have questions, they're not going to wait around for one week. Otherwise, they're going to get the information somewhere else, if, if not from you. So being generally curious about your sector, being curious about capital markets, wanting to deliver good service to your stakeholders, which are analysts, investors, management, you know, maybe rating agencies, if you, if you have um, those as well. So really wanting to deliver a good service to them and wanting to do that quickly in a good quality. And they will also reward you with that. So I feel the easier you make it for an analyst and investors to understand your equity story, the more beneficial it will be also for you because they're not making assumptions that might be wrong, right? So for example, when at About You, we um, released figures, we also added a fact sheet and also an Excel sheet. So you, the investors don't have to go into, for example, a PDF and copy out the numbers. And this is like really annoying for them because then they have to copy this in their model, but they could just download the Excel sheet and just copy them over in their model. So it saves them time. They can release the reports quicker with less mistakes and it just benefits everyone. So really having the service thought is very important. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think in terms of background, I am a big fan of you don't have to have necessarily a math degree or you don't have to necessarily have a finance degree. I think it helps as an interest point. But as I said, it's someone who's more like willing and be curious and willing to kind of learn as well, right? Because the company is developing and you should also develop and be willing to yeah, to develop with the company. That's very clear. And where do you think that role should be? Should the IR report to CFO then or to um, you know head of communication? Because obviously there's a lot of numbers and the KPIs investors are looking for uh, will be basically you know numbers that the CFO will have to validate. But as well, any piece of information that you're going to put on your website and communicate externally will, will be read by investors, right? And, and they will interpret that data information from a business perspective. So I guess the IR also must, must have a look and a, a say or an ability to filter this communication out into the market. I would definitely say the role should be located below the CFO. And it's very important that there's not someone else in between. I've seen that as well. It doesn't really work that well. I think there has to be a way that an, an IR, head of IR, can really escalate as well if something goes wrong. Like, again, time is really of the essence. And if you have to report to someone else whose prior is not IR, but the CFO's prior is definitely IR because, you know, that's like essentially, I mean, the stock price is kind of also the lifeline of the company, right? So Having like a direct access to the C-level is super relevant. And I also would say it's still more in the finance sphere as opposed to the communication sphere. So having this report to like a head of PR, I don't think it's the right way. Maybe the head of PR can really tell the story well from a storytelling perspective, but they usually don't really have a lot of idea about the numbers and cannot challenge or answer questions that analysts are sending. So I would definitely recommend to directly put it under the CFO. And that's also the usual thing that I see. Very rarely I see this differently. Sometimes I see it under the marketing department, which I find a bit strange. It just also shows a bit how the company is viewing IR. I still unfortunately see sometimes that IR is not being getting the respect or the, the importance within a company that it deserves and it, that it should get, right? It's a very important role. And if you put it, for example, under marketing department, I don't know. I, I don't see that this is the, the right place in the company. 
Actually, I've never seen that, but I guess, yeah, that would be a surprise <laughs> to me as well. What, what do you think beyond the obvious, right? What, what can a company do actually to raise its awareness, right, to investors during or after the IPO? What will be the good things to do and outside the box? Yeah, I mean, that's also something that I try to challenge a bit, the current status of investor relations through the usage of the digital tools, right? So I think, of course, you need to do all of the basics, right? This is like the foundation. You need to do your reportings. You need to do conferences. You're going to go on roadshows. You have fireside chats. You know, all of this is kind of the basic that everyone is doing. But with Unicorn, I'm trying to answer the question, what can you do beyond that? And I think this already can be something that can be done before, during, or even then specifically after IPO is you know, having a digital footprint of your equity story to reach retail, but also institutional investors to make them aware of you, to make your equity story, for example, on podcasts like this, right? Like a lot of people are listening to podcasts these days and maybe you, one investor will find your equity story just because he listened to a podcast or just because he saw a post of you or just because he saw a video on YouTube of you, right? Of the CFO or the CEO talking about the equity story. So you have to go wherever people are spending time on and people these days and whether that's institutional or retail, are not spending time anymore reading newspapers. Some do, of course, it's part of their job. But really, when you think of your own way, how you spend time, it's on the phone, right? And if you can somehow get into people's minds, if they saw you on a LinkedIn post or if they saw a YouTube video and they saw your equity story, I think this is something that investor relations partners should do much, much, much more of, obviously within the realm of what's possible in within regulatory frameworks. But that could be really a competitive edge that I see. And um, yeah, some companies are already starting to do that. And that's very exciting. Actually, it's a good point. I myself listen a lot to podcasts and, you know, uh, like to, to track founders, <laughs> CEOs on the net on podcasts and interviews, maybe, you know, three, four, five years old talking about the businesses, the industries, and also listening to competitors talking exactly. about those competitors as well. And you get a lot of information and it's very interesting. And then you, you get to, to meet them and, you know, you, you feel you already know quite a bit and you have a very interesting discussion and there's a lot available and more and more. It's a very powerful tool, actually. I agree. In terms of another things where I guess, you know, that there's still a work in progress, but all this noise around ESG disclosure, EU taxonomy kicking off in, in Europe as well. To me, it really feels sometimes that, that this is more tick the box exercise for firearms and companies when, when it comes to answering questions from investors of the market on ESG. But it's obviously increasingly an important consideration, even integrated into some scorings and mandate constraint for some investors. If the ESG score is not is not high enough, they won't be able to participate in IPOs, for example. So it is actually more and more a key factor for investment decisions. Did you think the IRs are also you know, capturing that consideration properly today? And, and what could be done here differently, if anything? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's something that companies are addressing in the equity story. I mean, if you're IPOing or not, like there's what I see now is that there's usually at least one slide in the slide deck that's covering ESG and it should hopefully be a bit more in a hundred page slide deck. And everyone is outstanding. Uh, trust me, everyone has best <laughs> ESG uh, disclosure and, and, and track record. Everyone is outstanding on that front. Yeah, no, but I hope that it's more than just one page in a hundred page slide deck. You know, it's also, it's again, like it's a bit of a signaling how much do I value this? But then again, I still had the feeling that a lot of investors don't invest because it's a great ESG story, right? So no one will invest because you're doing ESG so great. People will invest because you're not messing up on the ESG part. So I think it's a hygiene factor. Your equity story obviously needs to be on point and the numbers need to make sense and there must be an investment case. I mean, an investor is not a charity either, right? So they want to make money as well. 
But at the same time, I think it becomes more and more relevant and could be a showstopper. Exactly. At the end of it. So it, it felt like more like it's like a hygiene thing that needs to be checked. And if everything is all right on that, then they can move move ahead. That's how I felt about it. So I think it's important to also know your numbers there to show that you're doing, that you're improving, that you are um, taking this serious, right? I think the worst thing you can do is like not mentioning it at all, not taking it serious. I think this is really uh, a bad signaling. Yeah, and a low-hanging fruit is obviously to uh, you know start working on your sustainability report before the IPO, and I guess that's something the IR also can can lead as an effort internally. Yeah, we're getting to an end of the interview. Jula, any fun facts or memories you can share uh, with us about the IPO process you've been through? Ooh, I mean, there were many, many sleepless nights. <laughs> But I think uh, what I found very striking is that obviously I've never done an IPO before Corona, right? So before, and you know, you had to travel around the world and you would send management, you know, to travel all of these countries, which is also not great from an ESG perspective, but that is a side note. But it was really the first time that IPOs were done in a completely digital space and it was perfectly fine. And in fact, it was quicker and more effective than if you were to travel. I think the truth is probably for the future somewhere in the middle. I think it's also important to meet an investor. I think it also builds a certain connection, right? Like in a lot of the chats, whether you like someone or not is not only what you're saying, but also how you're behaving, right? Like sometimes it's just like this little extra thing that doesn't come across in just what you're telling about the story or about the equity story. So it's also sometimes in very interpersonal things and that kind of gets lost in a completely digital space. But that was quite interesting, right? To do a IPO completely digital has never done before as well, right? Before Corona, we didn't have to. And even doing the opening bell completely digital. So that was a very great experience. And I, yeah, I don't want to miss that one. So that was super exciting. And what would be the next one or what companies you would love to IPO or be involved in the IPO process if you could choose today? What would be the dream private companies to list? <laughs> If I had a dream client for Unicorn, I think I would love to, I mean, I don't know, like the, the bigger is better, right? I, there's, I think like a clan or something would be great if, uh, you know, like a, that would be something for sure. Uh, other than that, my own company, right? Like who knows, maybe Unicorn's going to IPO one day. Okay. Well, you like challenges because Klarna, it's, it's a great company, very large. I'm sure there will be a lot of investors looking at it. So it will, it will be quite intense if that happens. Probably, yeah. <laughs> All right, listen, thank you very much, uh, Julia. It was, was great discussion. Thank you for your input and sharing uh, your experience with us today. All the best. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Thank you for listening to IPO Stories. In future episodes, we'll host CEOs, CFOs, advisors, and other participants in the IPO process to learn from their experience. Welcome, Julia, today. If you like the show, please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share the show with people around you. If you have questions about the IPO process that you would like us to address with future guests, please get in touch at contact.ipostories.com. 